Chapter Twenty Five of Electricity and Magnetism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cataclyc. Electricity and Magnetism by Elisha Gray. Chapter Twenty Five. Electrical Products. Carborundum. The production of electricity in such enormous quantities as are generated at Niagara Falls has led to many discoveries and will lead to many more. Products that at one time existed only in the chemical laboratory for experimental purposes have been so cheapened by utilizing electrical energy in their manufacture as to bring them into the play of everyday life. Still, other products have only been discovered since the advent of heavy electrical currents. A substance called carborundum, which was discovered as late as 1891, has now become the basis of an industry of no small importance. It is a substance not unlike a diamond in hardness, and not very unlike it in its composition. The chief use to which it is put is for grinding metals and all sorts of abrasive work, it is manufactured into wheels, in structure like the emery wheel, and serves the same purpose. It is much more expensive than the emery wheel, but it is claimed that it will do enough more and better work to make it fully as economical. It was my pleasure and privilege to visit the factory at Niagara Falls, and through the courtesy of Mr. Fitzgerald, the chemist in charge of the works, I learned much of the manufacture and use of carborundum. The crude materials used in the manufacture of carborundum are sand, coke, sawdust, and salt. The compound is a combination of coke and sand. It combines at a very high heat, such as can be had only from electricity. When cooled down, the product forms into beautiful crystals with iridescent colors. The predominating colors are blue and green, and yet, when subjected to sunlight, it shows all the colors of the solar spectrum to a greater or less degree. The crystals form into hexagonal shapes, and sometimes they are quite large, from a quarter to a half inch on a side. The salt does not enter into the product as a part of the compound, neither does the sawdust. The salt acts as a flux to facilitate the union of the silica and carbon. The sawdust is put into the mixture to render it porous so that the gases that are formed by the enormous heat can readily pass off, thus preventing a dangerous explosion that might otherwise occur. In fact, these explosions have occurred, which led to the necessity of devising some means for the ready escape of the gases. The process of manufacture, as it is carried out at Niagara, is interesting. The visitor is first taken into the rooms where are stored the crude materials, the sand, coke, sawdust and salt. The sand is of the finest quality and very white. The coke is first crushed and screened. The part which is reduced to sufficient fineness is mixed by machinery with the right proportion of sand, salt and sawdust. The coarser pieces of coke are used for what is called the core of the furnace, which will be described later on. This mixture is carried to the furnace room, which has a capacity for ten furnaces, but not all of these will be found in operation at one time. Here the workmen will be taking the manufactured material from a furnace that has been completed, and there another furnace is in process of construction 
while a third is under full heat, so that one sees the whole process at a glance. These furnaces are built of brick, about sixteen feet in length, and about five feet in width and depth. The ends and bed of the furnace are built of brick, and might be called stationary structures. The sides are also built of brick, let up loosely without mortar, each time the material is placed in the furnace, and each time the furnace is emptied, the side walls are taken down. A furnace is made ready for firing by placing a mass of the mixture on the bottom and building the sides up about four feet high, or half the height when it shall be completed. A trough about twenty or twenty-one inches wide and half as deep is scooped out the whole length of the pulverized stuff and in this is placed what has before been referred to as the core of the furnace, namely, pure coke broken into small pieces, but not pulverized, as in the case of the other mixture. The amount used is carefully weighed, so as to have the core the proper size that experiment has proved to give the best results. The core is filled in and rounded over till it is in circular form, being about twenty-one inches in diameter. At each end of the furnace, the core connects with a number of carbon rods, about sixty in all, that are thirty inches long and three inches in diameter. These carbon rods are connected with a solid iron frame that stands flush with the outer end of the furnace. On the inside, the spaces between the rods are packed full of graphite, which is simply carbon or coke with all the impurities driven out so as to make good electrical connections with the core. This core corresponds, electrically speaking, to the filament in an ordinary incandescent lamp, only it is fourteen feet long and twenty-one inches in diameter. The mixed material is now piled up over this core, and the walls at the sides are built up until the whole structure stands about eight feet from the floor. A mass of the fine pulverized mixture, with a core of broken coke electrically connected at the ends. It is now ready for the application of electricity, which completes the work. Let us go back to the transformer room and examine the electrical appliances that bring the current down to a proper voltage to produce the heat necessary to cause a union between the silica of the sand and the carbon of the coke, which results in the beautiful carborundum crystals that we have heretofore described. The current is delivered from the Niagara Power Company under a pressure of 2,200 volts. The conductors run first into the transformer room, which adjoins the furnace room, and is there transformed down from 2,200 volts to an average of about 200 volts. The transformers at these works have a capacity of about 1,100 horsepower. About 4% of this power is converted into heat in the process of transformation, making a loss in electrical energy of a little over forty horsepower. This heat would be sufficient to destroy the transformer if some arrangement were not provided to carry it off. We have already described how this is done through the medium of a circulation of oil. Because of the low voltage and the enormous quantity of the current passing from the transformer to the furnace, very large conductors are required. The two conductors running to the furnace have a cross-section of eight square inches, and this enormous current, representing over a thousand horsepower, is passed through the core of the furnace, and is kept running through it constantly for a period of twenty-four to thirty-six hours. 
Let us consider for a moment what a thousand horsepower means, as this will give us some conception of the enormous energy expended in producing carborundum. A horsepower is supposed to be the force that one horse can exert in pulling a load, and this is the unit of power. However, a horsepower as arbitrarily fixed is about one quarter greater than the average real horsepower. If a thousand horses were hitched up in series, one in front of the other, and each horse should occupy the space of twelve feet, say, it would make a line of horses twelve thousand feet long, which would be something over two miles. Imagine the load that a string of horses two miles long could draw, if all were pulling together, and you will get something of an idea of the energy expended during the burning of one of these carborundum furnaces. Within a half hour after the current is turned on, a gas begins to be emitted from the sides and top of the furnace, and when a match is applied to it, it lights and burns with a bluish flame during the whole process. It is estimated that over five and one-half tons of this gas is thrown off during the burning of a single furnace. This gas is called carbon monoxide, and is caused by the carbon of the coke uniting with the oxygen of the sand. When we consider the vast amount of this material that comes away from the furnace in the form of gas, it is easy to see why it is necessary to introduce sawdust or some equivalent material into the mixture in order to give the whole bulk porosity, so that the gas can readily escape. We should also expect that after five and one-half tons have been taken away from the whole bulk, that it should shrink in size. This is found to be the case. The top of the mass of material sinks down to a considerable extent by the end of the time it has been exposed to this intense heat. Gradually, after the current has been turned on, the core becomes heated, first to a red, and afterwards to an intense white heat. This heat is communicated to the material surrounding the core, producing various effects in the different strata, owing to the fact that it is not possible to keep a uniform heat throughout the whole bulk of material. Some of it will be overdone, and some of it underdone. The material which lies immediately in contact with the core will be overheated, and that which at one stage was carborundum has become disintegrated by overheating. The silica of the compound has been driven off, leaving a shell of graphitic substance formed from the coke. After the current is shut off and the furnace has cooled down, a cross-section through the whole mass becomes a very interesting study. The core itself, owing to the intense heat it has been subjected to, has had the impurities driven out of the coke, leaving a substance like black lead, that will make a mark like a lead pencil, and is really the same substance, known as plumbago, in one of its forms. It is the carbon left after the impurities have been driven out of the coke. Surrounding the core for a distance of ten or twelve inches, radiating in every direction, beautifully colored crystals of carborundum are found, so that a single furnace will yield over four thousand pounds of this material. Beyond this point, the heat has not been great enough to cause the union between the carbon and silica, which leaves a stratum of partly formed carborundum. Outside of that, the mixture is found to be unchanged. These carborundum crystals are next crushed under rollers of enormous weight, after which the crushed material is separated into various grades for use in making grinding wheels of different degrees of fineness. This crushed material is now mixed with certain kinds of clay.
to hold it together, and then pressed into wheels of various sizes in a hydraulic press, and afterwards carried into kilns and burned the same as ordinary pottery or porcelain. These wheels vary in size from 1 to 16 inches. The substances used as a bond in manufacturing wheels are kaolin, a kind of clay, and feldspar. While carborundum has already a large place as a commercial product, there is no doubt but that the uses to which it will be put will vastly increase as time goes. This product may be called an artificial one, and never would have been known had it not been for the intense heating effects that are obtained from the use of electricity. It certainly never would have been brought into play as one of the useful agencies in manufacturing and the arts. It is not known to exist as a natural product, which at first thought would seem a little strange in view of the evidences of intense heat that at one time existed in the earth. Its absence in nature is explained by Mr. Fitzgerald by the fact that the temperatures of formation and of decomposition lie very close together. End of chapter 25 Recording by Cataclique